The, the problem with these uh, companies uh, and, and allowing these companies to be so dominant in the marketplaces, this isn't just uh, a monopoly bank or a monopoly oil company or a monopoly railroad. This is a monopoly on information. And if you've got a monopoly on information in a democracy, you control elections. And it is, I think, extremely uh, concerning that we would allow companies to grow in, in this way uh, and not make sure that there's competition. Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by no one this week. It's just me. Um, uh, Nick uh, had to uh, do some husbandly duties uh, with regards to potentially going to look and find the house that um, you know we're pretty convinced none of us are going to ever own um, because we are under the age of 40 and uh, the boomers appropriate all the wealth to them. Kidding. Um, not kidding. Um, but uh, you know, if BlackRock has not bought um, him out and and uh, sold him to China or something by the end of next week. Hopefully, he'll be back. But uh, we have a great guest on this week, our second sitting member of Congress, actually. Um, uh, a few months ago, we had on Congressman Jim Banks, and now we have on Congressman Ken Buck. We'll get to that in a second. But as always, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org, and you'll find everything we have cooking. I don't think there's any live programs anymore. Fellowship for American Statecraft uh, just closed. Hopefully, we're working hard on those applications. Um, and uh, and we just got done with our conference, Up From Chaos. Uh, this is being recorded before that. So hopefully, that went well. I have no idea. Maybe the official narrative in Washington, D.C. is that we're all Putin stooges. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but uh, you can check out everything we have cooking at AmericanMoment.org. You can find backlogs of this podcast. We're now well over 50 episodes. It's kind of nuts. And um, you can uh, rate and review View this podcast, uh, hopefully five stars. And uh, if you ask a question at podcast at americanmoment.org or in your review, we'll be sure to answer it on this show. Um, but this week we have on Congressman Ken Buck, um, Congressman from Colorado, has been a member of Congress for a couple of years now, and probably one of the most interesting members of Congress there is. You know, I, I make a riff during the episode um, that uh, most conservatives don't seem to believe in public policy <laughs> at all. Uh, Congressman Ken Buck is not one of those people. He actually has independent ideas about uh, the way the world should look and how it should look from a conservative perspective. The thing he's been most entrepreneurial on has been big tech, namely in the antitrust domain, how to smash these companies into a pieces so that they stop doing bad things. Um, uh, that's my words, not his, um, but you can listen to um, his very eloquent and measured words on uh, this episode of the podcast. I think it was very substantive, and I think you'll you'll learn a lot and um, hopefully get an insight into one of the more interesting members of Congress. Um, and uh, if you're a staffer, he even plugged two specific bills that you can potentially try to cajole your boss into getting on. So uh, hopefully that's a carrot for you guys to listen through to the end as well. Um, uh, and actually, we we also at the very end get to touch on his own uh, basic divestment from big tech um, to the point where it's made a, some aspects of his job very tricky. But uh, uh, Ken Buck is not going to not going to be seen using Google anymore. So uh, we hope you enjoy the episode. And we'll go now to our conversation with Congressman Ken Congressman, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. We always like to hear how people uh, got to where they are today, um, especially with a member of Congress. It's always fascinating. We had Jim Banks on a few months ago, and he told a great story. We'd love to hear yours. How did you end up uh, in the the dirty swamp? (laughs) Yeah, and it is a swamp. Well, uh, to go back a ways, I guess I... uh, 
worked on a, a ranch in Wyoming um, as a kid, um, 12 years old. I started working there, my aunt and uncle's ranch, and I uh, moved around a good bit um, in terms of schools, but in the summers uh, was pretty consistent. So I graduated from college, and I knew I wanted to go west, and I uh, went to uh, work on the ranch and um, then went to law school in Wyoming and uh, got a call soon after that um, from uh, then Congressman Dick Cheney, and he asked me if I wanted to work on the Iran-Contra investigation. So I came back to D.C., worked on the investigation, um, went, went to work for the Department of Justice here, and then uh, became a prosecutor in, in Colorado, ran for office in Colorado, and uh, uh, kept looking at the laws and thinking, uh, we can do better. We can make these laws better. And so I had an interest in running for Congress and uh, ultimately ran in 2014 and started in Congress in 2015. That's incredible. What was that first campaign like? I mean, I especially, you know, congressional campaign is that first threshold where it feels like most voters tend to care. Uh, most, a lot of voters just care about presidential elections. But um, what what was it like to be to be running for federal office? What what did you learn? What did you expect? What did you not expect? Well, I have to back up four years for the first campaign. So I ran for the Senate in 2010. Mm. And it was a, a good year for Republicans to run for the Senate. Uh, Colorado uh, was was getting more and more blue. And uh, I ran a, a primary against a, a former statewide elected official. Uh, she had all the endorsements in the state. She had all of the uh, large contributors in the state. And I was uh, pretty much on my own and uh, understood very quickly uh, when people were saying, Ken, it's just not your turn right now. <laughs> um, but I did have one uh, one uh, Washington, D.C. ally, and that was Senator Jim DeMint. And uh, he he really did a lot uh, to help me in, in Colorado, ultimately won the primary and, and lost the general election. But the Democrats uh, were worried about it. It was the closest election in uh, the country, the Senate election in the country. Um, and they spent $20 million telling everybody in Colorado that I was too conservative for Colorado. <laughs> and when I ran um, in the uh, congressional race four years later, uh, all my opponents tried to make me out to be too liberal for Colorado, but the voters knew because they had heard $20 million worth of commercials <laughs> telling them I was too conservative for Colorado. So uh, I was able to uh, get by uh, uh, with a, a pretty good margin in, in that primary. Yeah. What um, what kind of, I mean, it feels like a century ago in some ways. Uh, what were the, the big themes of that cycle? What were the issues that people were really running on? So I, I've always run uh, on on the same issue, whether it was 2010, 2014, or, or 2022, uh, and, and that is uh, spending. We we spend too much money, and if we get federal spending under control, we also get the growth of, of government, the growth of government in and uh, and how it relates to uh, interfering in state government functions, in private business functions, in individual liberties, and and so I am a, a big proponent of making sure we don't. Uh, go down the path of of uh, continuing this this crazy spending. I have not been very successful lately. Uh, <laughs> COVID was certainly a uh, a time where we uh, just kept spending and spending. But uh, I am uh, still convinced that the 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 path that we need to go down is to uh, be more responsible with our federal spending. Absolutely. Um, when you first got elected, that was a time of a lot of energy and change inside Congress, um, and you were part of the group of people that eventually would go on to found the Freedom Caucus, right? What was that like, being part of that you know, merry gang of misfits? 
Oh, it was great, actually. Uh, they they had before I got to Congress in '15. They had a few different groups. Uh, Justin Amash had a a Liberty Caucus, and uh, Jim Demint. I'm sorry, not Jim Demint. Jim Jordan and uh, Mark Meadows uh, had a, a caucus, and uh, Thomas Massey had a Second Amendment caucus. And so there were some different conservative caucuses, but there was an effort uh, when I got uh, to Congress to bring them together into the uh, Freedom Caucus, and we. We argued about bylaws and we argued about all kinds of uh, issues, but uh, it was really a good opportunity. A lot of smart people, uh, Mick Mulvaney and um, so many really good, thoughtful people around the table talking about policy. And and it was a great introduction to Congress because uh, everybody there uh, felt passionately and, and had a lot of background on different issues. And so uh, I, I was really fortunate to be in on that on that ground level uh, for, for forming the uh, Freedom Caucus. Um, it, it was also a time where uh, sort of the old guard in the Republican Party, John Boehner and, and some others, uh, ruled with with an iron fist. And if you voted against the rule, you were going to know about it. And so um, I did. And others did. And uh, there was uh, a lot of friction between uh, Freedom Caucus members. And I think that has uh, evened out a little bit at this point. But uh, it was an interesting time to see the power players in Washington, D.C. Yeah. What were the the repercussions for someone, especially a fairly young member like yourself? I know that one of the ways that Washington uh, really gets new members is there's carrots and there's sticks. And this is part of the reason we're so grateful for the Conservative Partnership Institute, because they help even that out. But what were those pressures that were on you at the time to 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 go along and get along as opposed to to do something bold like like what you ended up doing? Well, um, in in my view, there were uh, big sticks and little sticks. I, I didn't <laughs> see too many carrots uh, from, from my perspective, but I did see the uh, leadership and in, in how they acted. So um, I voted against the rule at one time um, and. Uh, there was uh, an effort, and I'm not sure exactly who in leadership started it, but uh, to, I was the president of the freshman class because Jim DeMint was. And I mm-hmm. thought, well, this is this is great. I'm going to be do something that Jim DeMint did. So I was pre- president of the freshman class, and uh, there was a coup attempt to take me out of being the uh, president. And uh, many uh, good allies on the outside, Ed Corrigan and some others, um, started uh, getting the grassroots involved and calling into offices. And so the coup failed. But literally at, at 10 o'clock at night, they said, we're going to have a meeting at 8 o'clock in the morning. And it's to, uh, uh, you know, remove Ken Buck as, as president of the class. And um, that that attempt failed. Uh, they also, uh, for the same uh, uh, vote, um, they tried to take Mark uh, Meadows' position as a chair, subcommittee chair on uh, oversight and government reform away from him. Um, we ended up having a meeting, uh, the Republican members, and threatening to remove the uh, chair of oversight and government reform um, if he removed Mark. And so that failed. Uh, but one of the things that, that we as a group learned was the uh, ability to remove a chair including the speaker. And and not too far uh, after that, Mark Meadows actually filed the uh, petition um, to remove the speaker. And, and that started a whole new, uh, really, uh, a, a different attitude in, in Congress in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Moving forward, um, you know, you've 
really made a name for yourself um, as the leading Republican on the issue of big tech in the House. I don't think that it's it's even close, really. I mean, there's a lot of members that like to go on TV and talk about it. But in terms of actually trying to put brass tacks to policy, um, you're, you're the leader. Um, I have to imagine that especially, you know, with a lot of the issues that got Republicans engaged in the 2010s, that there was quite a bit of, of thinking that that led you to to start to think differently about about this issue, about regulation in this domain in particular. Walk walk us through the the story there. What what initially piqued your interest about big tech, and and why is it um, you know an issue that that you look at differently than maybe some others? I uh, was in, uh, on two subcommittees in in uh, on the Judiciary Committee. One was immigration, and the other was antitrust. The antitrust subcommittee held a, a series of hearings, and uh, you know they were uh, fairly boring from my perspective. But we they had a field hearing in in uh, Boulder, Colorado. I went to that uh, field hearing, and uh, we, we had CEOs testifying, and and these are folks who, uh, you know, they're entrepreneurs. They're they're our kind of people. They and I and I, you know, a lot of them didn't vote Republican, but they still are people that I had a lot of respect for because they they risked their their uh, money, their time um, on on a dream. They were successful, and then a big tech company came in and crushed them over and over and over again. We heard these stories, and and I I prosecuted for twenty five years, and I looked listened to these stories, and I thought this this is criminal. These big tech companies should be prosecuted for this kind of conduct, and so it really got my blood boiling. And I, I that that was sort of the motivating factor. I started looking into uh, the activities more and more. And uh, just convinced that uh, we needed to do something and uh, developed a working relationship with David Cicilline from Rhode Island, who is the chair of the antitrust subcommittee. When the position came open, um, uh, when uh, after the uh, 2020 election, I uh, uh, made my uh, desire known that I'd like to be the ranking Republican on the subcommittee and, and Jim Jordan uh, selected me and uh, I was able to work more closely with uh, Chairman Cicilline on, on uh, moving some of these bills forward. Now, the big tech issue has a lot of different components to it. I mean, people talk about censorship. They talk about antitrust. They talk about, um, you know, their relationship with foreign governments. They talk about privacy. Uh, w- w- which of that basket of issues are, are you know, the apples of your eye and 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 uh, where you think the most opportunity is right now? So I think that there there are really three strategies that we need to employ to address the the dominance of big tech. And and the, the first is antitrust. The section is the second is Section two thirty, and and the third is privacy. Uh, the the problem with these. Uh, companies and uh, in, in allowing these companies to be so dominant in the marketplaces. This isn't just uh, a monopoly bank or a monopoly oil company or a monopoly railroad. This is a monopoly on information. And if you've got a monopoly on information in a democracy, you control elections. And it is, I think, extremely uh, concerning that we would allow companies to grow in, in this way uh, and not make sure that there's competition. The other thing that I think is really important to understand is uh, there will be a liberal progressive alternative at some point, and that is to create a government agency 
And it will be, uh, you know, when we had a railroad monopoly, we, we had the Interstate Com uh, Commerce Commission. Um, it, we will deal with uh, this in a, in a government way where government will decide what's good speech and what's bad speech. And we can't allow that. We need to have five Googles and seven Facebooks. Uh, we can't allow government to make the decision and just have one company in place. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the grassroots energy behind reforming big tech seems to largely be animated by censorship. It's that's the issue that gets the base moving. They believe that, you know, uh, information about conservative candidates, conservative politicians ability to speak commentators the president of the united states has been systematically stifled over the last it feels like seven to ten years almost now um when you're talking about the proposals that you have in mind on antitrust um you know seven googles five facebooks etc what's the chain of events that solves that problem because that seems like a lot of what's you know the 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 ticket to legislate in this way from a base that typically looks for limited government and 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 everything is is to solve that problem how do you reconcile the solutions you have in mind to that problem sure so uh i'll give you an example um uh, facebook for for years recognized that there was an issue with uh, particularly teenage girls and their self-image as a result of what facebook was doing and how they promoted their pages and and so uh the uh the full body image of these young ladies who who had sort of what society or or teenagers anyway thought was the perfect body um, uh, shamed those young ladies who didn't have a perfect body. And uh, the idea is that if we have uh, seven Facebooks, uh, one of those Facebooks is going to say, well, wait a second, there's a problem over here. We can fix that problem if we only allow images from the shoulders up uh, for all uh, um, people who are under 21, under 20, under 18, whatever, or over, I'm sorry, over that age. Uh, and uh, in doing that, um, you the competition actually solves the problem. Facebook recognized there was a problem and they started working on the problem, but they didn't let the world know that there was a problem and mm -hmm. they didn't know let parents know that there was a problem. And so they, they sort of suppressed the issue and, and uh, we continue to see more and more teen suicides. We continue to see more and more uh, eating disorders among uh, young teenage girls. And so uh, the, the idea that competition can solve that uh, is giving, it's, it's giving consumers uh, the power to make a choice. Mm -hmm. uh, same with Amazon, same with Apple, uh, same with Google. We, we have companies that if they were forced to compete in a marketplace, they, they would have to moderate some of their worst tendencies. Mm -hmm. So Facebook is, I think, a, a useful example to bring up in this particular scenario because it's a social media company, which is typically what you know, people say the words big tech, but that's what's front of mind for them. And they bought another social media company. They bought Instagram. And so um, in your mind, if antitrust law was functioning in the way that, you know, uh, Congressman Buck or, you know, Emperor Buck, you know, you, you so say you could write the laws the way you wanted to. Um, what would have been the mechanism by which that would not have been allowed in the first place? Well, what we found out since the merger and, and since some uh, emails have been released was that uh, Mark Zuckerberg considered Instagram a threat, a competitive threat. 
And so his interest in buying it was to make sure that he didn't have a competitor in the marketplace. Uh, uh, Twitter, Jack Dorsey at Twitter, uh, uh, approached Instagram about a merger. Um, Instagram turned down and said, we want to continue to operate. We think this is going to be successful. We think we've got the answer. Um, and they started operating, uh, continued operating. Um, Mark Zuckerberg threw so much money at them, there was no incentive. Plus, he gave them the ability to uh, run their company. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only after several years, and they see the Facebook model, that the original owners of Instagram resigned and walked away from uh, their product because it was harming people, and that's not what their vision was for the product. Mm-hmm. So uh, the one issue that certainly is relevant is to make sure that uh, we don't um, allow mergers. Uh, and there were 750 mergers during the Obama administration uh, in, in the tech area that went unchallenged. Uh, that was largely due to the influx of Silicon Valley employees in the Obama administration. But uh, part of the issue was there there is a standard called the Consumer Welfare Standard. And courts have started interpreting that as, is there a price impact to consumers? Well, you don't pay to use Facebook. They monetize the information they receive from you. You don't pay to search on Google. And so the courts have been allowing mergers to take place under the uh, rationale that there is no harm to the consumer because there is no price increase. So uh, part of the answer is to change the consumer welfare standard. And, and part of the answer is to make sure that we scrutinize more carefully the mergers. And part of the answer is to make sure that the FTC and the Department of Justice have the resources to go forward. The, um, the reason that they don't go forward more um, isn't just because they're, they're, they're risk averse, but because they kept losing in courts because of the uh, uh, definition of the consumer welfare standard. Why did the courts decide what the consumer welfare standard is? Because Congress didn't do what they should have done under Article One. We're supposed to create the laws. We saw this whole area of e-commerce developing and did nothing. And so the courts had to step in and figure out what, what did they mean in 1890 when they passed the Sherman Act and how does it apply to e-commerce in 2020? Mm-hmm. Um, that's absolutely unfair to courts and, and not their role. Uh, so if, if Congress had done its job, and we should be doing our job now, passing laws, giving guidance to these uh, courts in, in this situation, I don't think we would have uh, had the mergers that uh, were allowed back in, in the day. In the traditional conservative imagination, the the kind of the two poles of this conversation were consumer welfare standard, which was the sort of conservative position, and then anything that the left would come up with, which would be inherently worse. And so it seems like conservatives circa 1998 to 2015 would have looked at the the situation and said, stasis is better than any change because change will almost always in your, to our detriment. What's it been like to try and convince your colleagues and and other people in the movement that that may not be the case, that we do need a new law? Well, I think it's obvious to people the harm that's occurring as a result of uh, allowing these companies to get so big and and to control so much information. We know that uh, Google changed their algorithms at some point in mid-2020, and that change in algorithm benefited Joe Biden and it hurt uh, Donald Trump. Allowing a company to impact an election 
like that when when 94% of desktop searches and and close to 90% if not more of all searches occur on Google is is frightening. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of my colleagues now understand that we can't allow that to happen without examining it closely and developing some solutions. So the the Chicago School under Milton Friedman and the Bork idea of consumer welfare standard, um, all those uh, were, are, are good ideas and, and are successful. And I certainly started out opposed to government intervene, intervening in this area. Um, I think we have gone to the point now where we need to make sure we create competition. We need to make sure we address the, the flow of information in this country and, and I think my colleagues, uh, many of them, uh, recognize that. Do you think the scenario where the conservative temperament or the conservative mind, or maybe even just the way that the policymaking ecosystem in D.C. is structured, um, was a hindrance? You know, because by the time we got to 2020, you know, uh, the sitting president of the United States getting booted off of Twitter and an election potentially being shifted because of the information war that these companies are able to wage. And that's pretty far for an issue to go. I mean, it, does it frustrate you at all that there wasn't any attention paid to this before things got that bad? Well, let, let's talk about this issue that you pointed to, mm-hmm. and that is how these companies do business in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. Um, they have thrown tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. at various conservative think tanks, liberal think tanks, um, other interest groups in uh, universities yeah. uh, in uh, America and particularly in the swamp to try to influence policy. And so uh, there are some people in, in the Republican Party who are hiding behind the consumer welfare standard and hiding behind the, the philosophy of the Chicago school. Remember, Robert Bork was in favor of breaking up Ma Bell. He was in favor of breaking up um, and, and, and really addressing the monopoly that, that Microsoft had created. He wasn't opposed to government intervention in the marketplace. He just didn't want to see government protect businesses. He didn't want to see a protectionist form of antitrust. So inefficient and, and uh, outdated businesses shouldn't be protected in the marketplace just because they're smaller. Uh, so uh, these companies have acted in a way that has really uh, influenced uh, Republicans in how they approach uh, antitrust law. I think they'll lose. I think we will have competition, and I think we'll be better off for it. Yeah. Um, and it's it's incredible to see just how much money is thrown around this town. In fact, some Fortune 500 companies have disclosure requirements on what kind of stuff, the, the giving that they do to C3s and C4s. And um, uh, I know that you can, someone, there's a link floating around somewhere for Googles in 2019 or something like that. And you see a lot of uh, very familiar conservative organizations on that list. And a lot of them have since, uh, you know, committed to stop taking big tech money. But it's it's certainly a problem. And presumably it's also a problem in their giving to members of Congress as well, right? I mean, uh, I know that a lot of members have now committed to stop taking money from big tech. I started that pledge. That's and, fantastic. And we have in, in the teens right now, I wish we had more, but mm-hmm. we have a number of members who have said, uh, and it isn't because, uh, I, frankly, I think most of us don't know who gives to us. We, we have, you know, 10,000, 12,000 donors a, a cycle. So it's not like we know uh, exactly who gives and who doesn't give, but uh, there is a, an appearance of impropriety, an appearance of a conflict of interest with the public. And I think that's the important reason to say I'm not mm-hmm. taking money from tech. Mm-hmm. But going to the other side of the equation, I mean, do, do you feel like things have 
gone too far? I mean, it's, is it, is it, is it too late to really address, um, along the sort of, you know, modest, you know, policy lever side of, of the equation? I think, you know, especially, I I think antitrust is different. It's, it's sort of a much more timeless proposal, but, you know, sometimes I look at the section 230 fight, for instance, and it's like, you know, section 230 felt like it, it may have solved the problem six years ago, but now we're six years on. And now we're talking about conservatives getting kicked off of banking services. Like that's, we are now entering a brave new world. I mean, what happened up in Canada with the truckers and everything. Um, and, uh, and even some of the things happening in, in, in response to some of the foreign policy crisis going on right now, it seems like big tech is only getting bolder every day. Do, do, do you feel like there's a need to sort of escalate our policy response in, um, in, in concurrence with how much worse things seem to be getting? Uh, I, I think we've got to start somewhere, mm-hmm. and and there are a number of areas uh, that that should be moving simultaneously. And antitrust is one, and Section two hundred and thirty is one. Um, there are others, privacy, and, and some others. I, I think the uh, I think one point that's really important. You've you mentioned a couple times that Donald Trump was kicked off Twitter. He was also kicked off Facebook. Mm-hmm. Parler was taken off of Apple and, mm-hmm. and Facebook and. Uh, um, Amazon Web Services uh, 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 refused to allow Parler uh, to use their uh, their web services. Uh, the effort has uh, been aimed at uh, um, anti-abortion pro-life groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, the effort's been um, aimed at uh, uh, Second Amendment groups, gun organizations. So uh, the left has attacked us uh, on issues, on candidates, on elected officials. And, and it's time that we get past this idea, well, maybe we shouldn't be in favor of a little government intervention. Yeah. I'm not in favor of government intervention. What I'm in favor of is let's make sure we have competition mm-hmm. in the marketplace. And uh, we, there's an old Lenin saying that, um, you know, we'll, we'll, the, the Americans will uh, make the rope that we hang them with. And, <laughs> and, and, and that's exactly what's happening here with big tech. They yeah. are... Uh, they are hanging us with our own arguments against each other that we shouldn't uh, try to uh, make sure there's competition in that marketplace. Mm-hmm. You know, the c- consumer welfare standard is interesting because I think it plays into a whole suite of sort of conservative arguments, but also just more broadly kind of approaches to economics and policy that seemed very well suited to the world of atoms, you know, the world of the industrial revolution, where we're talking about machines and railroads, we're talking about buildings and cars, we're talking about things you can touch and see. We're now in the digital age, and and, and things are very different. I mean, what's the analogy to the customers themselves being the product in the way that they are with big tech, where they don't pay to use a service, they are who's being sold other than slavery, I guess. You know, there's there's no real analogy to, to that. What are the kind of first principles that you've had to think through and in, in how to approach not just this issue, but I think there's implications in in every domain of policy. Um, and, and hopefully the right will be leading on those in the coming years. Um, how, how do you think about that fundamental paradigm shift? I, I, I don't know that it is uh, new. Um, if, you, if you look at the 1996 Telecommunications Act, mm-hmm. the, there was a problem um, between, you know, if you had a uh, cell phone company X and cell phone company Y, you couldn't necessarily get a clean call between the two. Mm-hmm. So uh, the 1996 Telecommunications Act said, um, Federal Communications Commission, you will make sure 
that there is interoperability, that these companies will talk to each other. We have emails now. Uh, Gmail and Hotmail um, have to be able to receive each other's uh, emails. Um, and uh, we they also had this idea of portability, that, mm-hmm. that if you had a, a cell phone number with company X uh, and, and company Y offered you a better deal, you could go to company Y with that cell phone mm-hmm. number, with your contacts, with your photos. And, and that portability helped open up the marketplace. Mm-hmm. The real issue uh, in, in tech is who owns that data? Mm-hmm. When you uh, search and you are um, finding, uh, you know, an F-150 pickup truck and all of a sudden you get these ads for F-150 pickup trucks everywhere you go, um, who owns that? If you wanted to take it from uh, Google and go to Bing, can you do that? And you can't right now. So one of the things that we have to make sure is that individuals own their own search history. Mm-hmm. And if we get to that point, um, I think we will help competition. And so there are really good ideas based on the Telecommunications Act, based on other uh, principles and antitrust law that will help the, the marketplace open up. One of the recent news stories where you were featured was, um, I believe it was in Politico, maybe in Axios or something. Um, it turns out you don't really use much big tech anymore. You sort of personally divested yourself from that. Tell us a little bit about that. What, what have those habits been like? It was funny. I was on a Politico um, forum, online forum, and uh, they said, well, now go to your Google browser and you can log in. And I said, I don't have a Google browser. Why would I use Google? You're talking to the guy who wants to make sure we have five or six Googles here. And and they we had an 18-minute delay while people were just sitting there with music playing until they could figure out how to get me onto uh, the forum so we could talk about antitrust work. And then they talked to me about other things. And I don't use Amazon. I don't I don't have Amazon Prime. I'm not interested in that. Um, you know, I'm not. Uh, there there it, it dates back a few decades, but. I think that uh, as an individual, we have a moral obligation to make sure that we play in the marketplace in, in a way that we think is is appropriate. And so I, I don't use those products. Yeah. And when I talk to uh, groups, I tell them, you know, as, as an individual, you're you're an important part of, of the marketplace. And as a consumer, you make choices and make make sure you're making choices that are informed and, and that promote your values. We- couldn't agree more if my co-host Nick was here. He'd be, you know, banging the table in agreement. So, uh, you know, we're putting together a snap conference right now on foreign policy. And, uh, uh, you know, just earlier today we were organizing it um, uh, and his counterpart, the organization we're partnering with was like, well, yeah, he, he sent him an Amazon link for walkie talkies for the conference and communicate with each other. And Nick just, you know, sent it back to him and was like, if you'd like to find me another link, I'll purchase it. Otherwise, we're, we're just not having it. It's not going to happen. We I don't think we've purchased a single thing from Amazon at American Moment in the year plus that we've existed. And we use ProtonMail. We use um, uh, uh, Mattermost instead of Slack. We use uh, Keep instead of Salesforce. We have, we have an entire suite of big tech alternatives. I think it's certainly important, especially for conservative organizations, you know, the ones that are talking the loudest about this stuff. I mean, look, within reason, right? Like part of the reason we believe in doing public policy is because you can't just rely on individual consumer choice to solve everything. But I think that it's a good way to lead by example. Have you inflicted uh, these preferences on your staff as well? Do they all have to not use Google? (laughs) Um, I've tried. I haven't been as successful. Um, You know, it's interesting. I get on an elevator and uh, kids your age have a phone in their face mm-hmm. and and they're 
on their Facebook or Twitter or something. And I say, good morning. And they kind of look at me like, you're weird. <laughs> you don't know me. Why would you say good morning? And, yeah. and maybe it's a generational thing, but I actually think talking to people is a good idea. And mm -hmm. we've lost a little bit of that. And it's mm -hmm. unfortunate. Well, let's see. Uh, someone once framed this to me in this way, which is that a lot of the Silicon Valley tech founders, especially the founders of social media companies, seem to be slightly socially maladjusted people who found a way to get the entire country to operate through their preferred intermediary, which is technology, as opposed to communicating face to face. It's a lot easier if you're a little bit awkward to communicate through a black screen rather than uh, communicating directly with a human being across the table. It is. And it's it's sad because yeah. I think we're, we're going to miss something. And, and a lot of it. Uh, is bigger than just two people interacting. It's mm -hmm. really a, a sense of community and it's a sense of country mm -hmm. and patriotism. And um, if we start uh, losing some of that, it's it's going to be very, very difficult to recover. So when you see Mark Zuckerberg with his Oculus on strapped to his head, you know, flailing around in the metaverse, you don't see that as utopia. You see that as dystopia. I don't even see that, <laughs> to tell you the truth. I yeah. uh, And one of the, we talked about a, a recent meeting with Republicans. One of the things I brought up is, guys, we, we've got to start thinking about the metaverse because uh, we didn't think about big tech 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And now we find ourselves in this terrible position. We don't start thinking about the metaverse today. By the time um, it, th that technology is dominating we're, we're going to be in, in trouble. Yeah, and that's what being entrepreneurial on policy is like. And that's what could have prevented some of the issues we had over the last few years. If people had been focused and paying attention in 2015, 16, then maybe, you know, we'd be living in a very different country today. Um, on this theme of, you know, things that people can personally do um, to fight big tech, um, you know, I believe that's something you talked about quite a bit at your recent CPAC speech. What 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 would your rules for patriots be on uh, on on big tech and just uh, how to comport their personal lives well I, th I think one of the things that a lot of your viewers are going to do is to consider uh, making donations uh, to candidates to um, uh, foundations political entities uh, to political parties i think one of the questions they should ask is have you ever taken a donation from a big tech company if so how does that influence you you may not uh, it may not be the litmus test. It may not be, I'm never going to donate to someone who does this, but it's at least worth asking mm -hmm. uh, that question. Another thing I think is is just the power of, of each individual consumer. Uh, we, we, have a, we have alternatives, and some of the alternatives aren't really as good. I go on to uh, uh, an Amazon competitor, and I have to wait two days to get my, you know, you name it, uh, deodorant. Well, it doesn't two whole days, <laughs> you know, back in the day, it would take me two days to make my shopping list and go to the store and, and actually uh, buy it uh, uh, at a brick and mortar store. So um, I think that, that people uh, shouldn't expect things to, you know, they push a button on their computer and, and something shows up 10 minutes later at their door. We, we can actually uh, survive and make good choices and make sure that we are uh, living in the country that we want to live in, which is a country that really um, respects small business and uh, try to try to foster that that sense of, of community. Yeah, I don't know where the right went wrong on this. Uh, we used to be better about it, but at some point we decided that capitalism and being in support of free markets was synonymous with consumerism making an idol out of just purchasing things all the time, spending down. There was a conservative organization that I will not name that um, said that one of the proofs 
during COVID that the federal government's policies were overreaching and there were issues with it was that Americans had less credit card debt at the end of it. I'm sorry, that's not a bad thing to me. I don't think Americans having less credit card debt is a bad thing, but somehow we've created an idol out of consumerism about purchasing, about immediate gratification and everything. And you take that population and you put instant gratification in front of them in terms of the dopamine you get from social media and big tech, and you can't blame them when everyone's addicted. Right. Well, um, we have the ability not to drink. We have the ability um, to make a lot of choices, and and one of them should be to uh, not uh, be... I I think about uh, if I had more time, I'd be spending it with my grandkids. I wouldn't be spending it on Facebook or or Twitter or Mm -hmm. uh, the social media uh, platforms. If I had more time, I would be trying to improve my golf game. I wouldn't be spending it or I'd I'd read more, Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I wouldn't... Uh, spend it in, in some of those ways, and I think people just uh, should step back a little bit and and figure out what's what's best for them, but also what's best for the country in terms of uh, how these companies act. How has what you know about big tech influence the way you counsel your grandkids are raised? Well, you know, again, um, I think uh, my my kids think I'm a little weird. <laughs> um, they enjoy the convenience of, of some of these products, um, but we have some good uh, discussions uh, in the holidays and, and special occasions when we get together around the dinner table about mm-hmm. uh, what what each individual's moral uh, obligation is in this mm-hmm. world and and what it is to each other. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I think that uh, things things will click. Mm-hmm. So you're I'm hopeful. You're, you're not bringing Google Pixels to Christmas. <laughs> I'm not bringing Google anything. That's a good segue to maybe a slightly different category internal to that umbrella of big tech. We've been talking about social media companies, but you've also taken a look at um, Amazon and, uh, you know, the app store side of things like Apple. Walk us through how you're thinking about those examples in particular. What are the what are the problems that you've identified from a conservative perspective and and what would solutions look like? So, uh Apple uh, charges Spotify a 30% surcharge because they have Apple Music. If they don't have a competing uh, app, they don't charge the surcharge. So all they're doing is they're punishing companies that compete with their uh, their product. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it happens in, in a number of, of different areas. Um, Amazon, likewise, they see a product uh, selling very well. They replicate that product. They put their product on page one. They put their competitor on page three, and and they run their competitor out of business. The um, the discrimination of uh, competing products is something that can be banned, can mm-hmm. be outlawed, and is anti-competitive. Uh, if you produce, if Apple Music is better. Let it compete with with Spotify. If you charge everybody a ten percent surcharge to be on the App Store, you know, put put that same surcharge on on Spotify, one of your competitors, but don't increase that uh, that surcharge. So the non discrimination bill um, is is just that you can't self preference, and and that idea we hope uh, and I think it will uh, produce competition uh, in the marketplace and, and and better products, making Apple make Apple Music even better. If they want to make sure people uh, listen to it uh, more than more than Spotify, uh, the um, there there are some other bills I think that are that are helpful. One is 
um, a bill that gives state attorney generals the ability to sue in their home states and keep those uh, lawsuits in their home states. Under the Clayton Act in, in 1913, Congress gave the federal government the ability to sue in any jurisdiction in the country. Um, but state attorney generals and private parties were lumped together and a judicial panel that makes a decision on where those cases go. Uh, many times, many uh, times too often, those cases have been sent to the Northern District of California in uh, Google. Gee, I wonder where that is. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and so uh, so that the, the jury pools and others are influenced by uh, the, the big tech companies. And so. Uh, we're hoping that that bill passes. We have more than uh, 107, 108 uh, Republicans who are committed to voting for that bill now um, because I put a, a discharge petition on the floor. So there are some bills that, that I think will move this Congress and, and be successful this Congress. What's the process of working with uh, Democrats been like? I mean, you, you're a Freedom Caucus guy. You were sort of the, the right wing of the right wing party. Um, it's got to be a new experience in, in sort of working on, on major legislative proposals with, with left of center members. What's that process been like? Um, what's What's been the avenues where you have found a lot of success? Where have you kind of decided just not to talk to them too much? What, what's that been like? It's really interesting. Um, I, I came here uh, sure that I was going to not like a lot of Democrats. And, <laughs> um, on a personal level, um, I think the longer you're here, the more uh, personal relationships you develop. Um, a lot of times, like uh, uh, Jonah Goose is from uh, Boulder, Colorado, uh, and uh, he and I fly on the plane all the time together, and we, we talk about issues. And uh, there was a uh, camp Amachi where uh, Japanese Americans were um, interned during the uh, uh, FDR administration after uh, Pearl Harbor. Uh, we worked together to make that a national historic site. Um, really not much disagreement in Congress. There were yeah. a few people who voted no just because they vote no on everything. But mm -hmm. for the most part, it was one of those bipartisan bills. And yet we don't get a lot of uh, credit in Congress for doing things in a bipartisan way. Um, the the tough thing in, in antitrust is uh, a number of my allies in antitrust were over the top uh, anti-Trump. Uh, you know, uh, Democrats, um, uh, David Cicilline uh, brought the motion for the uh, to invoke the 25th Amendment, uh, you know, on President Trump. <laughs> uh, the reason they didn't like President Trump was because he was so effective. It wasn't because right. he was ineffective. And yeah. so to talk about the 25th Amendment was was just ridiculous. And, and uh, every time I see one of my uh, allies on the Democrat side, uh, doing something like that, I just kind of cringe because I know I'm going to get beat up by my fellow Republicans for working with somebody <laughs> uh, like that. But it's important that we reach across the aisle on issues that we can agree on um, and just disagree strongly on issues that we can't agree on. But it's been a challenge. It's been a challenge because people say, well, you can't trust him or you can't trust her. Well, you know, we've, we've got to work together. Mm -hmm. We've got to make sure we have a majority. And the key to having a majority uh, in the House is that the Senate will consider something. Mm -hmm. They've got to get to 60 votes. They're at a 50-50 tie right now. So if we bring a bipartisan bill, there's a good chance the Senate will consider it. If we bring a partisan bill, probably won't get through the Senate. Right. Um, no, I, th I think I think your approach is the right one because, you know, I, I have pretty interesting beliefs on basically every single issue our organization does. And the coalition looks 
not dissimilar in character to the one that you've created around antitrust on each of those issues. You know, you have some Democrats and some Republicans, and there's some some in both parties that don't agree for whatever reason, and actually moving the ball forward on legislation as opposed to just talking about these issues all day, which is what it feels like, unfortunately, a lot of our politics about involves finding and making those coalitions. And in the realm of big tech, antitrust seems like the place where you can make the most out of uh, a sort of tactical ecumenism because... You know, I, I've, I've talked to people who, you know, uh, there's Democrats who will hear you out on antitrust who have no patience for a Section 230 conversation because they want less speech, not more speech. Um, but, uh, you know, if they can agree that they don't like this big tech company and we can agree we don't like this big tech company, then smashing with a hammer probably is something that you can agree on. Um, what uh, what what has the other slices of the pie, you know, on on privacy, Section 230, has has that been harder to partner with Democrats, or or have have you how have you found that? Well, the, the challenge with Section 230 is uh, the Democrats don't agree about how to fix it, mm-hmm. and uh, they will be in the White House for another two years. Mm-hmm. So the idea that we're going to wait four years from the time Joe Biden took over to fix a very serious problem is ridiculous. We have a bipartisan group working on antitrust. We Mm -hmm. can pass bills on antitrust. We should get done now Mm -hmm. that which we can get done. And if there is a time when we have a 60 vote majority in the Senate, when we have a majority in the House and we have the White House, then then we can maybe fix uh, Section 230. But talking about Section 230 and saying, we don't need to do anything on antitrust. This is the real answer. Mm-hmm. You can't get there. I, I'm all in favor of amending Section 230, but you can't get there today. This is something we can do today and we should do. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a more macro sense, what um what have the last few years, you know, taught you about how to think about issues as a conservative? I mean, obviously this is you know, sort of the cutting edge of, of, of what policy looks like coming out of the right. Um, what, what is that process for you of sort of reconsidering core tenets of, 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 of what it means to be on the right, to be a conservative? What's that been like? It's really a fascinating uh, um, journey. I've had a lot of time uh, visiting with my friend uh, Mike Lee and my friend Ted Cruz and and uh, Dan Bishop and and Andy Biggs and others uh, in in the House and and having discussions about uh, is is government intervention and uh, making sure that government sues and and brings uh, antitrust cases against these monopolies is that bad if uh, ten thousand small businesses are able to innovate and grow and compete uh, is is where do we fit as a party? And I think Donald Trump really uh, was a genius in how he redefined what it means to be a conservative. We are not the party of mega uh, international multinational uh, corporations. We are the party of of the working man. And and to understand that in Donald Trump's world was to, to to sort of connect immigration with wages at home, uh, illegal immigration with wages at home, to connect uh, trade agreements with China with wages at home. And we're doing the same thing now with these uh, big tech companies. How do these tech companies treat 
the average American. And how, by the way, when they go to China, they have a whole different set of rules. Mm -hmm. They're only interested in making money, but here they're interested in making way, way too much money and at the same time being woke and discriminating against conservatives. Mm -hmm. And so Donald Trump uh, has said over and over again, we should break these companies up. Um, I'm not sure that that's the only answer that we should pursue, but certainly more competition is part of the answer. And and when we have these really uh, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin conversations with with my friends, we get we move down the road to a better understanding of antitrust law. Mm -hmm. What um you know, one of the issues that the Trump administration negotiated in the last year uh, was TikTok. And this is, I think, the fourth pillar of the big tech com com conversation that's starting to emerge is how it intersects with our national security. Now, Facebook would love to go around and say, well, you can't break us up because uh, we will help you compete with China. <laughs> uh, and I thought that was a little bit too cute by half. And it's been pretty funny to start getting the YouTube ads about that and everything. Well, um, in fact, uh, one of them's been running tons of ads against Josh Hawley, and I'm sure that you've gotten um, uh, a lot of ads run against you as well. What's What do you make of that side of this big tech debate, the national security, geostrategic competition side of things? The, the way America stays ahead is to innovate. Mm -hmm. We're never going to have lower wages, uh, lower labor wages. We're never going to have uh, less expensive energy. We're never going to have uh, some of the advantages um, in, in manufacturing that, that China has. Um, but China can't stay up with us on innovation. If we have companies suppressing innovation, we don't stay ahead. If we have, if we have uh, competition in the marketplace, if we have incentives to innovate, we will stay ahead. So mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't buy the argument that we're somehow going to be hurt uh, regarding uh, China. Frankly, if Facebook went away today, we would be just as strong vis-a-vis uh, -vis China as we are right now. Facebook doesn't make widgets. Facebook allows us to communicate with each other, and we could uh, do that with smoke signals and some other things if we <laughs> needed to. But we don't need uh, Facebook to be in a strong position uh, militarily, uh, economically, uh, socially with, with China. So uh, I, I, I don't take seriously their arguments regarding uh, China. I do think that uh, they they uh, are using uh, China as the boogeyman to say, um, if, if you do anything in this area, we're going to be weaker regarding a threat, a an adversary. And, and they are a threat and they are an adversary. We're certainly seeing that with Russia and how China reacts to that. And we're seeing uh, China um, and, and what they would like to do with Taiwan. And so I think we have to be very careful with China. But the answer is always more competition, not less competition. Mm. I think that innovation point is is spot on. Uh, I have a lot of friends in tech companies, and I'm sure you heard something similar. Um, the, one of the underrated problems that these tech companies cause at their size, at their level of profit, um, they have this almost gravitational force for all of the talent coming out of our universities. Um, if you're a you know, high IQ, intelligent person in the computer sciences or even any of the other domains that these companies are in, um, there's a giant salary, you know, waiting for you at Google, at Facebook, at Amazon, at Apple. And um, you don't really work on much when you're there. That's that's the amazing thing you hear is that, you know, these people that they aren't they're they're almost just being kept there so that they aren't working on something that would actually threaten these companies, um, either at their competitors or at startups, that these are essentially golden handcuffs designed to prevent the creation of competitors. Um, so the labor side of this is, I think, a, a very underrated one. And, and the sheer 
profits that these companies have that allow them to essentially fund people to twiddle their thumbs all day has to be has to be part of it. Why, why do you think that these companies are? I mean, I think it's uh, forget what the exact stat is, but it's something like out of the Fortune 50, like an, an, an obscene proportion of the most the highest market cap companies are just these big tech companies. In some cases, ones that don't even create any physical products. Why do you why do you think that is? Why are they differentially so much more economically successful than than you know companies that make things that make tables and books and you know cameras and so on well and and if you look uh in the last hundred years uh, uh big tech and big pharma uh the, the profits are just gigantic compared to all the other industries mm-hmm. in, in america uh the reason with big tech is very very simple they're they're a monopoly mm-hmm. and and right now there is no uh, competition and there's no change in the market that that uh, is is harming them but i'll give you another area that that's really concerning and and that is investment funding Mm. um if if amazon decides they're going to make this widget and you're in the widget company you're not going to get any investors to to invest in in your next Mm. uh level of of widget manufacturing because amazon now has said we're going to crush this competition and no one's investing so it, it really affects the innovation in the sense that um, in, investors will not look at products that any of these companies are, are involved in. Did you ever try Clubhouse? Clubhouse was this uh, audio room only uh, social media company that started in early COVID. Um, and the idea was was that it was it was almost like a digital salon. You know, you could walk into these rooms. There was a speaking set, and there were listeners, and then you could go in and talk to people. And um, they experienced a serious boom. They were onboarding like millions and millions of users. It was absolutely crazy. All of that stopped the day Twitter implemented its spaces function, which is the exact same thing. They had the incumbent audience from having the Twitter user base. And Clubhouse had, I think, raised a pre-seed and a seed stage. And uh, I don't think they've raised a Series A because uh, which investor is going to look at Twitter getting into this? And I'm sure if it had the feature had any more success, Facebook would get into it too and then decide to get in as a Series A or Series B investor for something like Clubhouse. Right. Yeah. Um, what um, what, what else on the financial side of things? I, I think that, you know, uh, on, on the investor side of things, because, you know, venture capital, you know, a lot of these Silicon Valley founders, they go on to be these major forces in investing and creating the next generation of companies. What, what, what are some underrated aspects of, of how they play into this equation in your view? Well, I, I think that... Uh you know, in, investment will flow to the most promising uh, prospect. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you have these giants crushing all promising prospects, mm-hmm. investment is only going to flow into the giant. And that's that's the issue that we're trying to deal with here. If uh, Instagram, uh, if, if that merger was struck down and Instagram competed with Facebook, Facebook would have had to create the what Instagram had, Instagram would have a head start in that process. Um, there would have been at least one competitor, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, perhaps even uh, some venture capital flowing into mm-hmm. uh, that as a as a promising competitor. But mm-hmm. uh, given the um, business model and and really uh, um, uh, actions uh, that that these uh, monopolies have taken. They've, they've cut off uh, lines of investment for for competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Congressman, we have a lot of staff and in some cases, some members that listen to this podcast. And so they may work for members that have not yet signed on to the variety of bills that, that you've been advocating for. What are the two or three top bills that you're working on in this big tech space? And if you want to give this kind of 60 second pitch for each of them and why why members should sign on. Sure. So uh, the, the first one I mentioned uh, already, and that is the venue bill. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives state attorney generals the ability to sue. It's a great Republican This is the antitrust bill. discharge petition. And it seems like it's the furthest along of everything you've been working it, on. It right? is the furthest along. And, and it really is a, a, a bill that promotes federalism and promotes uh, states' rights. The state can sue in its district and, and Google can't move it to the Northern District of California. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's good in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Kevin McCarthy has signed on to it. Uh, Jim Jordan voted for it in, in the Judiciary Committee. I think there is a lot of, of good support uh, across the spectrum. So a lot of folks haven't looked at it yet. I think if they look at it, we'd have 150, 180 Republicans on that uh, discharge petition. We've we've had uh, the first assistant and deputy attorney general of Texas on the show, and and I've known them personally, and they're very excited because the Texas attorney general's office has been one of the the AGs that are most excited to you know go after these companies, and this would make it much more possible for them to do so. And, and Texas is a great example. Texas sued Google um, because of the ad tech situation mm-hmm. and the way Google is is. Uh, really uh, monopolizing and abusing its position um, in the ad space. Uh, That case was moved to the Southern District of New York or the Eastern District of New York. Um, So now you have Texas attorneys having to go to New York City to defend the case. Mm -hmm. And you've got Google hiring a New York City law firm, again, um, playing in a backyard uh, with, with that law firm. And so uh, we, we've just got to stop that. And I think it will. I think uh, Speaker Pelosi will put that on the floor uh, within the next few months and, and we will get that passed. Uh, the next bill that will be on the floor um, is the non-discrimination bill, which prohibits self-preferencing uh, by Amazon and Apple and uh, Android and, and other um, uh, of those uh, companies. Um, from there, it gets a little more uh, questionable. I'm not sure. We passed six bills. We've got three or four others that are uh, sort of out there, and I'm not sure. It, it really depends on what the Senate has an appetite for, mm-hmm. how much floor time they have to decide uh, whether we're going to take another risk um, on other bills in the House. But I think you'll mm-hmm. probably see a total of four or five bills move in the House uh, before November. You mentioned the the paradigm shift that, that you know, you've experienced, but also been a part of that, that President Trump started to create in the party. And, you know, uh, I think that, you know, a member of Congress only has so much time in the day. So the fact that you've chosen to focus on this area internal to the economics issue vis-a-vis antitrust and law enforcement is is great. Um, but, you know, the uh, you take votes on all sorts of issues. What what else have you sort of maybe started to rethink? What what have the last couple of years made you kind of scratch your head and wonder maybe maybe conservative orthodoxy on this given issue is not quite right, and maybe there's a different way to be a conservative on it. I mean, there were lots of themes to President Trump's run in 2015-16, uh, trade, immigration, foreign policy, and so on. What, what else have you been kind of rethinking? Well, I, I the 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 fascinating thing about my job is I don't get uh, 100% of what I want. You know, uh, we started uh, here on antitrust bills, and now we're here. And by the time they pass, we'll be over here. Mm -hmm. Because the more people that join, they want something, the bill changes. A lot of times it becomes better. It's not just a matter of compromising away good principles. The bills get stronger when Mm -hmm. different eyes are on the bills. Mm -hmm. Um, I I look at uh, immigration. We had 
uh, good lap one and good lap two on the floor a few years ago during the Trump administration. Um, good bills, but they weren't good enough. We had to find a way to get another 10, 12 votes to, to be able to get those bills across the finish line and probably 40 or 50 more. So I, to, to make sure we, we uh, uh, got the bills through the United States Senate. So I, I think one of the real challenges is how do we um, get immigration is not a difficult issue to solve. It's it's uh, intellectually easy to solve. It's politically very difficult to sell. The Democrats can't sell to their base a wall on the border. We can't sell to our base that more people are going to live in this country that came here illegally. Mm -hmm. So how do we uh, get together somehow, solve the problem and, and move on? Because it's a terrible problem now. Uh, we are much worse off now than we were four years ago, um, and we will be much more. We'll be much worse off in four years. So, allowing people to flow across this border, um, we, we've got to be more realistic about how we deal with these issues. But uh, just about every issue that I see is an issue that requires uh, real compromise mm -hmm. and, and understanding of, of the other side's position and and how to move forward and, and and spending is one that's near and dear to my heart i think uh, we've got to get back to caps and we've got to stop spending the way we do and we've got to choose between a and b and not just uh, all of a and all of b uh, maybe it's a part of a and a part of b but uh, we we refuse to make the hard choices in congress and it's something we need to work on yeah i think that you know what one of when i'm feeling my most cynical it it it, it seems like the Status quo ante, you know, I think this has changed in the last few years, is that conservatives just stopped believing in public policy. They're just, no, 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 no. We don't have the, want to have the conversation. And there is, you know, there, there's that's a choice you make because the second you say, I don't want to even have the conversation, well, then no one's going to ask you your opinion <laughs> on on what that legislating looks like. It, uh, how do you think about the kind of the, you know, be, again, you you still are a you know, member of the Freedom Caucus and, um, you know, what's the adjustment in in that world been like for you, you know, taking uh, a more active approach in shaping public policy um, uh, been like? Well, well, I think you're absolutely right. If, if, if Freedom Caucus members don't get on the field, we're never going to score. So the, the goal is to be able to uh, be at the table and make sure that we are promoting conservative ideas in bills and, and moving those bills forward. Mm -hmm. the, the most important thing we can do is get the majority. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody listens to you when you're in the minority. So yeah. uh, if we get the majority and, and uh, we're able to move forward in the majority, we need to make sure that the leadership um, has our priorities in mm -hmm. those bills. But we, we do that by interacting. We don't do that by sitting back and criticizing what everybody else does. Mm -hmm. Uh, Congressman, have has anyone called you a socialist for the things that you you've been proposing? What's that been like? <laughs> that would be uh, one of the more polite names I've been called. <laughs> I, I worry a little bit about what my grandkids are going to think of me if they ever read some of these stories. Yeah, it's like written. either he was literally Hitler or literally Stalin. We can't quite figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you know that that comes with the territory. Mm -hmm. If you want to do good things, you're going to get criticized. Mm -hmm. well, Congressman, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and having this conversation. I think you're one of the most thoughtful members of Congress, and uh, hopefully some uh, folks will, will take a closer look at the bills um, uh, that, that you're working on. Is there anything else that you'd like people to, to take a look at? Um, I'm, we'll plug your social media and everything, but anything else? Uh, just, uh, if you would, talk to members of Congress about uh, competition in the marketplace. That would be great. Wonderful. Well, thank you for coming by today. Thank you.
Hopefully you enjoy that conversation with Congressman Ken Buck. I told you, measured, smart, capable. Uh, he's a great member of Congress, and uh, we were very honored to have him uh, give a good chunk of his time here on uh, Thursday evening to come talk to us. And so, uh, in fact, after we uh, stopped taping, he he thought of something else he wanted to talk about. So really generous with his time. And uh, we say thank you to his staff uh, and him for helping make this happen. Um as always, you can find the, the full backlog of everything we have cooking at AmericanMoment.org. You can find over 50 episodes of this podcast, uh, you know, well over, you know, I think we're over 100 hours of content, maybe maybe a little bit less than that, but a ton of content, um, lots of great episodes. Uh, if you want to listen to another member of Congress we had on, Jim Banks, if you want to listen to more on big tech, uh, I can think of guests we've had on from Brendan Carr to Antonio Garcia Martinez to Rachel Bovard to, um, you know, uh, who else am I thinking about? Um, Will Chamberlain. Um, We've had on tons of episodes about big tech at this point. Adam Kandub. Um, it's great. Um, uh, probably the, the issue we focus the most on because it seems like the issue where we may actually get something done here soon. And so if you want to read more about all the different proposals to potentially do something about big tech, you can go to amcanon, americanmoment.org slash A-M-C-A-N-O-N. Uh, and you can um, look at the features we've written on big tech um, that kind of centralize some of the best that's been written and said and spoken on video about this issue. So uh, we hope you'll do that. We hope you'll rate and review this podcast five stars. And we hope to see you next week on another episode of Moment of Truth. And hopefully Nick will be back next time, too. Thank you guys for listening. Bye. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.